time for the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Blind from birth, Luther King has never let that stop him from attaining his goal on becoming a blind broadcaster. And now, here's the blind broadcaster himself, Luther King. Welcome again, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, the flagship entity of the Luther King Broadcast Network. My guest for this week's episode is Hall of Fame sports writer from the Associated Press. I'm very blessed and honored to be joined by Teresa Walker. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcast directory. If you have suggestions for guests you'd like to hear on the show, email me at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at king underscore tsb and on Instagram at lking.cardinalsfan85. And you can find more information about this podcast by searching for the Blind Broadcaster Podcast Facebook page and more information on the network. Look up the Luther King Broadcast Network play-by-play page. But that is Luther King Broadcast Network play-by-play page. My interview with Hall of Fame sports writer of the Associated Press, Teresa Walker. And first off, thanks for the time. It took us a minute to get this actually coordinated. And when did you know that writing was going to be your life's work? And how was sports a major factor in it? Well, it it is funny. I've always been nosy my entire life. And I've always... (laughs) which helps, trust me. And I've always wanted to tell people stories. The writing portion, I'll admit, was a struggle even into college. Uh, I I, I was telling stories and and figuring out how to write, but uh, it wasn't until I probably really became a journalist. My first job out of college, the University of Tennessee, was at the Daily Times in Maryville. And and there, I, I, I probably, that's where everything seemed to start clicking for me as far as writing. I mean, and it helps that I was I was covering police and, and courts and local school boards. And there, there'd be some days where I'd have three stories on the front page of the paper. So I was writing a bunch. And that... <clears throat> That really clicked it in. Now, for the sports component, I've always loved sports. Uh, you know, I grew up, the first thing I ever saw on a TV was the WGN Chicago Cubs living as a kid in Chicago. And I just, the, you know, why are those guys wearing pajamas on the field? And <laughs> I, I became, I, I become sold after that. I, I grew up watching sports with my mom, not my dad. My dad didn't think that women would be interested in sports, but it was my mom. And when we moved to Tennessee in 76, you know, there was only the, you know, three channels plus the UHF and, you know, thank goodness for NFL on Sundays. So I, I watched Earl Campbell and Kenny Stabler and Dan Pastorini, Terry Bradshaw, although I was an Oilers fan uh, because Earl Campbell, I mean, a guy who could run and people are grabbing in his Jersey and it just comes away in shreds in their hands. How could you not love watching a running back like that? So uh, between that, that's what made me a sports fan. Uh, just absolutely loved watching sports. 
but it, in the 70s, mid-70s, and even into the 80s, never thought about being a sports writer because even though there were women out there doing it, I didn't see them. You know, we don't, you know, for, for people today with the internet, you know, you can have whatever you want at, at, a, at a touch of a button. That seems so strange. But yes, I'm from the era where, you know, no internet, no email, uh, phone call, you better check your time or you're going to be spending a fortune to call one state over. Uh, you know, things were just so different then. So I didn't see the women out there. The only woman I re really saw doing sports was Phyllis George on CBS's pregame show uh, with Brent Musburger, Jimmy the Greek, and Irv Cross. And then it became Jane Kennedy. That was it. So I went to college and was going to be a journalist. I thought I would go be a foreign correspondent. I studied Russian in college, had studied French in high school, and just thought I would be doing something else. So I get to, you know, I get to my first job. I, I covered one high school football game. I wrote one sports feature. Uh, and then, you know, the Associated Press called in Nashville. And I've been with the Associated Press now for 31 years and counting. And, you know, when I walked in the door at AP, I loved it. Uh, 6 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. And I was, I was writing football games, basketball games, baseball games, NAIA tournament games from Jackson. And for two and a half years, just absolutely loved what I was doing. Do you think <clears throat> that the small college schools will ever... <laughs> get their just desserts because you mentioned the NAIA when Lipscomb was in the Trans South for years. Then you had Trevecca in the Trans South. Now they're in their own conference. I think like the Gulf Coast Conference or something like that. Even Fisk, a historically black college university, is now going in the GAAC, the Gulf Coast Athletic Conference. They, you know, took a seven year break from that. So, how do you think these small schools? that are so-called small schools, but we don't refer to them as small schools, can find a niche somewhere. It's going to be such a challenge. I mean, you know, now we're seeing chatter that the, uh, you know, the college football playoff is going to expand. And, you know, if you, you know, watching the NCAA tournaments, you know, it kind of made clear that, you know, the, the NCAA gets their money off of the men and women's tournaments yep. and the women's tournament helps fund, you know, all of other college football aside from the power five uh, because so few schools turn a profit. And it does feel like we're getting closer and closer to a tipping point where, you know, you're going to have the schools that have athletics for profit or, you know, especially with the name and, and likeness legislation that's that seems to be coming any day now, hopefully. Who um, knows? Because that one's been seems like every other day there's a new player coming onto that onto that suit or something. Exactly. And, and, you know, it, it feels like that should have been done, you know, a couple of years ago. And, you know, they, they, they're still grappling with how to make that happen. But, you know, that's the challenge. It's coming. And more money is going into that area. I mean, just check the, you know, the coach's salaries, you name it, TV contracts. Uh, it, it's happening. And the schools that can't keep up, do, you know, like Memphis, you know, they're trying to be in that group of five league, trying to stay close on the edge. But, you know, the, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots just seems to be getting bigger and you know athletics in colleges were started to you know just to, to help round out the student and to be in you know something else you know just a further extension of intramurals and it, it just morphed into what it is today and you know how many schools end up having to take a step back and just keep it for students to you know to help them be healthy uh you know I 
I wish I had a crystal ball. I don't. Um, but, you know, money is what makes things go around. It's why, shoot, it's why Tennessee State University hired Eddie George as their new football coach. Ain't that the truth? to get more donors, to get more money, to support their, their athletics programs, you know, specifically football in this case, but, you know, to raise the visibility of their athletics program. And we'll see how that works. They entered, they, they announced a new fundraising system, the same, you know, hours after they introduced Eddie George's new coach. So uh, it's going to be, you know, just keep a close eye on it because it, you know, it feels like the ground is changing underneath us every day. Well, let's take this twofold from the TSU side and the Vanderbilt side with Clark Lee for a minute. First off, let's go back to TSU for a minute. How do you think Eddie George is going to do as a coach? Because it seems like everything he's done from playing football to basically anything he's done, he's been a success at. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I expect him to have success. Now, is it the success that they want to win the OVC regularly, to, to be competing in the national playoffs and to try to be the North Dakota State, you know, a yearly favorite to win the national title year in, year out? We'll have to see. I mean, it, it's not easy. Jacksonville State leaving the OVC will kind of make that a little easier because Jacksonville State has become one of those national powers. But uh, anything that Eddie George has done, he goes into it with an intention and I mean, this is a guy who started acting and was doing some of that during his playing career. And he ends up acting on Broadway in the play, in the musical Chicago, which required singing and dancing. So <laughs> I'm not putting anything past Eddie George just because I've seen him be too successful in what he decides to do. So, you know, uh, so but let's see. And the same thing with Clark Lee. You know, this is a guy who, you know, brings in, it's a different kind of staff. You know, he steals uh, Casey Stengel away from Tim Corbin to be his, you know, director of, of football operations to help kind of run things over there. Mm -hmm. And he brings in Barton Simmons, uh, you know, who's been a recruiting guru for so long, you know, to help identify the talent that Vanderbilt needs. And to me, that was such a smart move. Big done. Yeah, it's a huge move because now that's the thing. If you're going to be successful at Vanderbilt, you know, it's not about trying to crack the top 25 national recruiting rankings, which would be nice, but you have to find the guys that you can recruit to Vanderbilt who can get into Vanderbilt. Uh, anyone in the Nashville area remembers the Ron Mercer situation where mm -hmm. they wanted him to play basketball and, you know, they, they wouldn't approve, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't admit him. And so then he went to Kentucky. Yes, he did. And he won a national championship. So uh, you, you've got to get the athlete who can come there, who can compete on the field and, and grow to compete in the SEC, but also compete in the classroom at Vanderbilt. And, you know, the, the challenge has been for so long, the disconnect that seemed to be between the academic side and the athletic side. I'll say this, it, it, at this point with this current chancellor and with Candace Lee as AD, it seems like those two sides are as close as I've ever seen them. And I've been covering Vanderbilt since, uh, you know, uh, Rob Dowhower. 1992, I precede him. A couple seasons there with Jerry DiNardo. So, oh, uh, Jesus. Exactly. So, you, you and Plaz go back a long way. Exactly. I was at a Monday news conference with uh, Rudy Kalis, Larry Woody, where we were, you know, well, I let them do the arguing because I was still pretty new on the beat about uh, Jerry DiNardo wanted to have, wanted to pre-clear topics and questions for players on Sundays, you know, for, before they would allow you to talk to players. Uh, let's just put it this way. 
discussion at that Monday news conference, I go write a story about it. And because of the questions and all the attention, uh, that policy got changed. Uh, I had to do a quick write through. I think it was late afternoon when that got <laughs> changed because one, it just doesn't make sense. And two, you know, you, you've recruited these athletes to Vanderbilt. They should be able to talk to reporters without a bodyguard or pre-vetting of, of, of stuff. So Agreed. yeah, been on that beat for a very long time. You know, let's let's put it this way. The, the best thing about seeing this $300 million Vandy United fund come together, and, and I know that for Vandy fans, the, the big piece wasn't addressed, the football stadium. You know, you, you always want to see what's that going to be. The, the last major renovation of that happened while I was in high school in 1981. So it's been forever. You know, the berm, which now they're going to turn that into some premium seating, which is smart. Maximize the people who are coming, give them something to enjoy. You know, yep. the grass, the grass was great for the kids to run around, but you want people who can pay lots of money to come and sit and get close to the game. Think of it as courtside seats in a way. So it, it, it's a, it's a tiny step and they're doing things on the beverage and, and, and food concessions area to, to, to make the football stadium better. But they put most of that money into what the student athletes are going to be dealing with and 300 million is an awful lot of money, you know, locker rooms, weight rooms, practice courts for both the women and the men, you know, the, the last big expansion at Memorial, there were offices for the coaches. And yes, I can say both of the coaches offices were nice, but one practice court was a huge step up. Now they're going to find a place to put a, you know, one in there for the women. Why is that important? <coughs> Players can go over there and shoot balls on their own and, and same for the football team. They want to put a, an indoor field right next to the outdoor field. So that as Candace Lee told us, you know, they, they had to move a, an April or a spring practice this year uh, over indoors because of rain. It takes forever because it, as beautiful as that indoor facility is over on the Bandy campus, it's not close to football. So exactly. they're fixing some of the past mistakes in this. And, you know, that's the thing, that chicken and the egg. Does the, does the money come first? Does the winning come first? Well, you have to have some. It goes hand in hand. You yes, have, it does. You have to be able to, A, you've got to be able to get put up a good product on the field before anything else. You just have to be able to do that. And and now Clark Lee has something to recruit to. He can show the pictures. He can he can show the construction. I mean, you know, they're working on a locker room over there as we speak. Uh the 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 football and basketball are yeah, the other bigger stuff is going to start <coughs> once the football season ends this year. So, you know, and, and we're I can't wait to see the renderings that are coming this summer on this. So it's a step. It's not the step that Vandy fans wanted, but it's a huge step. And for TSU, you know, hiring Eddie George was the big step. Now, you know, we've heard a lot of names mentioned i'm still waiting to hear you know get those hear those things are actually finalized and see who's on this staff you know mm -hmm. we've heard lots of great names but you know between eddie george brandon fisher uh hugh jackson those are names that should help them immediately with with uh recruiting and talking about the money Rod Reed said his final after his final football game this spring that you know that they hadn't really been able to do summer programs uh, because of a lack of funding that their recruiting budgets had been way you know cut back. Money helps there, and if your players are sticking around working in the summer, that's where you get better as a football program. Not just in spring ball, not just during the season. That's where you have to get better if you're going to compete nationally, and that's where hiring Eddie George is going to help TSU take a big step forward quickly. How big do you think Eddie George's uh, speed dial is when he has like coaches like a Jeff Fisher, a Les Steckel, a Greg Williams, the old guard that, you know, were, was coaching him when he came into the league when they went from Houston to Tennessee? How big 
or important do you think those old school coaches are that, you know, might not be on this staff, but can be an ear in the process for him? Oh, absolutely. I mean, think about it. If you're if you're going to go make a big purchase or make a big, big decision in life, you call your friends, your close buddies and, you know, the people in his phone, uh, you know, it, it's got to be massive. So it has you know, to be. Yes. I mean, between Ohio State, you know, his time, the, the one year he spent in Dallas, his career here with the Titans, the fact that he was working for Fox Sports, you know, analyzing the NFL, you know, he's been he's been doing so, so much. You know, uh, he was the Titans pregame, you know, during the preseasons. He was working with Corey Curtis on Channel 2. So he was having meetings with all those coaches over the years when they were doing pregame, you know, the preseason games Mm -hmm. on the Titans. So, you know, yes, his Rolodex has to be huge. And that's the thing. He can call and ask a question, ask for advice and and, and be talking to, you know, OGs who know exactly what they're talking about. So Mm -hmm. and, and that that just adds to his credibility. You know, he walks into his first team meeting with the Tigers. He's got a Heisman in his trophy cabinet. You know, he was, uh, you know, he, 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 he's a guy who's a pro bowler. He played in a Super Bowl. You know, this guy, you know, his, his you know, bona fides are out the, out the door. You know, he started his own business, uh, landscape architecture. You know, he'd been working in wealth management the last few years. So, you know, this is a guy who's done pretty much everything. I mean, the fact that the, the Nashville Visitors and, uh, and Convention Bureau were at the uh, news conference introducing Eddie. Uh, you know, Butch Spiridon was in that room. Uh, you know, George Plaster was there. I mean, the, the people in Nashville, this is why they hired Eddie. It's not just because he's such a name in NFL. He's known in Nashville, and he has connections with people who might never have taken a look at writing a check to TSU before they hired Eddie George. Speaking of the Titans, thoughts on draft? I'm kind of not surprised with what they did. On the, with the draft, to be honest with you. In hindsight, I, I was one of those who wanted to see a wide receiver taken <laughs> early. Uh, but when you look at Caleb Farley particularly, yes, it's a risk. You know, he had a microdiscectomy in March. Uh, and, you know, it's the kind of procedure that, you know, Steve McNair had during the season in 1999, came back and finished the season that ended in a Super Bowl uh, appearance for the franchise. Uh, so I'm not too worried about it. People are like, oh, and a lot of people were scared off. This is a guy who might have been, probably would have been the number one cornerback off the board, if not for the March surgery. Uh, instead, he does have that surgery to make sure that, you know, a disc that had been giving him problems is healed once and for all. There is the concern, did it heal? Is it is it prone to future injury? But, you know, John Robinson insists that they did their due diligence, uh, that their doctor checked in with them. They did medical rechecks in Indianapolis before the draft. So, you know, in this weird year where there was no combine, they did do the medical checks uh, and, and talk to the doctors and they're confident. Now, you know, he, he, he's, he's convinced he'll be ready for training camp. Now, yeah, they may ease him into training camp because he's a cornerback, runs fast. You know, you got to make sure that the hamstring strings are all good and everything but if this guy plays this year you ended up getting a top 10 pick at 22 overall uh it's it's like that's huge huge and just like two years ago when they got jeffrey simmons at 19 a guy who would have been a top tender if not for the torn acl so you know sometimes you need draft luck to fall your way that way and then you add elijah mold into that secondary Seven players on that roster who started at least three games last year are gone from a defense that was 
dead last by a long shot on third down conversions. Uh, they Only Cincinnati and Jacksonville had fewer sacks than the Titans, and, and they were last in the league going, you know, through 15 games until a great day in Houston. So, you know, they were 28th in total yards allowed per game, 29th against the pass. This was a defense that arguably was one of the NFL's worst last year, and as I put it in my wrap-up, they went through a, an extreme makeover. So, you know, they brought in Bud Dupree. You know, people want to see well was it uh, it was it the Pittsburgh system well people who watched the Steelers after Dupree got hurt and saw that TJ Watt wasn't as effective think it might be Bud Dupree who is the key here and that's what the Titans are betting on giving him his second contract here with the Titans Danico Autry Rashad Weaver is a kid I cannot wait to see uh you know he he's a guy who uh led the ACC last year in quarterback uh uh pressures. He had seven and a half sacks in nine games. Uh, and this is a kid that I, I really can't wait to see on a Titans uniform. I think he's a guy who really helps bolster that pass rushing uh, depth that they absolutely needed. Uh, you know, Monty Rice, I, I'll admit my eyebrows raised at that, but you know, <laughs> they did not pick up, they're not picking up the fifth year extension for Rashawn Evans and they needed depth. I mean, people forget. I was that- surprised they stood back when they made that trade with Green Bay to slide back to 92 to pick up a hundred. And then what they did got out of pick 104 and then picked at 126. Well, and that's the thing, you know, they get, they got Des uh, Fitzpatrick at 109. Yeah, 109. Uh, to start on Saturday, but, you know, Monty Rice is a guy that make, you know, remember where they were a year ago, Jayon Brown, you know, is out for the season with the elbow injury. After and that really hurt. Hurt them tremendously. He's that the guy with the green dot who calls the schemes and they had to go to Will Compton and uh, Darren Bates to help fill that spot. That was a huge drop off. You know, both of those guys, you know, Will Compton is not with an NFL team right now. He's a guy who's a bottom of the roster special teamer, and that's who they had to turn in to fix that defense. So, and now that secondary gone, Dory Jackson, Desmond King, Kenny Vaccaro, uh, Malcolm Butler, and now you've got Caleb Farley, uh, my brain. Elijah Molden, Elijah Brady, Molden, uh, Brady, Brady Breeze at the safety kid. spot. They are, and they signed Janoris Jackrabbit uh, and Jenkins Jenkins. and Kevin Johnson. So that, that secondary has been turned completely around the one, one keeper. And and don't don't forget Fulton and Jackson too. If they're going to, you know, they're, they're about to be second year players. Exactly. And, you know, Mike Vrabel was asked Friday night at the end of the the second night about, uh, you know, worries about getting such a young group, you know, to to, to build cohesion and communication in such a young group. And he goes, that's where it happens on the field. And he kind of took a little bit, I took it as a dig at the last secondary group. You know, it's not about t-shirts and slogans, Mike Vrabel said, it's about doing it. And the last secondary, they had t-shirts, MMs, my man catches no balls and you know it's not about talking about it you gotta go do it you gotta go do it and they did not i mean yes malcolm butler had uh four interceptions last year but you know i I think that was it i mean besides i didn't see anything from amani hooker also had four and he was a guy who was not starting and that's guy that's a guy who i expect to replace kenny vaccaro and so you've got a younger guy who's going into his third season who already he tied for the team leading interceptions last year so you know <clears throat> you couldn't expect a drop off from amani hooker for sure i'll put i, I wonder about this do you think maybe Ordoy jackson when he came back he was not the same player Coming back from that injury when they when the Packers basically ran him ragged. 
it possibly. I mean, you know, he he got hurt right before the season opener, goes on IR hours before the kickoff in Denver. Uh, you know, and, and they needed him. Let's face it, that defense, even with him, you know, struggling in Green Bay, and, and it just felt like the entire team was off. Maybe it was the snow. As much as they wanted to play in the snow, the cold, everything, it did that team just did not look like we're not snow. built for the snow. No, <laughs> they, they weren't ready for that that night. Sorry. I will say this. I would have liked to have seen them run Derrick Henry a lot more early in that game, but you know, you. That, that's what he was built for. But, you know, and he didn't, he, he seemed to get a little better uh, going, you know, as he got a couple of play, a little bit of playing time, it's tough to go from injury to <laughs> playing a December game in prime time where you're absolutely needed to be at your best. So, you know, was he completely back? You know, he may have been completely healthy, but being completely back, there's a reason why they have, you know, what, five, six weeks of training camp mm -hmm. and still at least three preseason games to, you know, to get guys ready for that speed of the game. You know, that, that whole talk, it, it sounds cliche at times. There's preseason speed, there's regular season speed. Then there's postseason speed. Exactly. And it ra it ramps up. And part of that is the intensity uh, surrounding everything and the speed that you play with. So uh, it, it's tough. You know, Barry Trotz with the Predators once upon a time, he always used to say for injured guys coming back that it's like trying to jump onto a moving train. It's tough to do that no matter how talented an athlete you are. Yeah. Speaking of moving trains. What did you think of the Predators on Saturday against Dallas getting Forsberg back and getting a few of the other guys? How seamlessly do you think they're going to have to quickly fit in to try to make this playoff run? Because right now they're sitting in the fourth spot, and either between Florida, Tampa, or Carolina, Nashville has at least got a reservation to go there to one of the three places in the opening round. If well, that's the where they're at. That's the challenge. Make sure you get there. And, you know, it, it starts tonight. You know, they've got a tough little stretch here going to Columbus. Those are two games that they absolutely must win. And then they wrap up with two home games against Carolina. So the huge challenge. Uh, they've got to make sure they secure the spot and then they're going to have to raise their level of play. That's mm -hmm. where getting these guys back this week, they get a chance to get four games under their belts, five games actually under their belts, get back up to that speed and then get ready for the postseason if they make it, because, you know, it, the, the standard's been set for the predators, you know, that they had, they kind of had a youth movement due to all the injuries and those young players came in, they came in and played with speed. You watch Tanner Janot just lay people out left and right. You know, they're, playing more physically and far different from the team that started the season. I, I had, I was so convinced this team was on the, a bad rail that I had preparedness written in case they, you know, they decided to fire John Hines, even though I knew David Poyle just doesn't do that. I mean, last year with Peter Laviolette was stunning because he doesn't do that, uh, but that's how bad this team was struggling at that time. So the fact that they've turned it around, UC Soros is playing, you know, it, it, some of the national hockey writers are saying this guy deserves votes for the heart trophy as in I don't know about that but well here's the thing this is the guy who has gone you know he's leading the NHL and wins yep. and save percentages since March 15th so if he's doing that and he drags his team from the bottom of the NHL where they're trade bait and looking at the lottery picks in the draft to playoff contention getting into the postseason he absolutely deserves votes and if he keeps playing this way it looks like maybe he's growing into that role as the number one starter that they sure hoped he would be to replace Pekka Rene. If that's the case, then the, the power to 
more power to him. And who knows? We saw what Pekka Rene, a hot goalie, did for the Predators in 2017. Oh, yeah. Anything is possible at that point. That said, I'm still going to need to see the Predators beat some of these top teams. That that seven to one win against Tampa a couple weeks ago was nice, but it still it felt like Tampa was kind of still like maybe a rest night. You know, they know they're in the playoffs. Their only worry is about seeding at that point. I think the Tuesday game where they had that lead and let it get away in the third period. That's the thing that's going to concern me about this team. Can this team, when they have a lead, find a way to lock it down instead of saying in this track meet where Florida is going to be able to, you know, outskate them, be more physical in their own zone, win time of possession, like we always talk about in football, winning time of possession, making sure the other team doesn't get the ball. You have ball two to one or like the puck two to one in time where it gets to the point of where they can't skate with you well those are two areas that this team was so so sorely lacking in in january and into february uh speed skating fast speed and being physical and the herd line on that fourth line with you know Janot and Sissons and you know Trennan it, yep. it, they're setting a tone that seems to be trickling up through the line so you know they, they're, they're setting a standard play you know play hard hit guys and skate fast and you know they're going to have to probably find a way to raise that even more to beat some of these to beat whoever they face in the first round if they're there but you know I have more confidence that they're going to have a chance because once you get into the playoffs, anything can happen. We've seen oh, yeah. And this is a franchise that still has enough guys to be to remember not advancing against Arizona last year, losing to Dallas in the first round in 2019. So, you know, and remember what you can do back in 2017. So nobody gave them uh, the Predators a chance against the Blackhawks in 2017. You know, that's the beautiful thing about uh, sports. You get them on the ice, the field, the court, and the better <laughs> team in that moment will go win. It's not the better team over the season. It's the better team on that given night. In a short series. Yes. So speaking of short series, where do you think this Grizzly team is and where do you think the Grizzlies may have a problem if they somehow get out of the play-in tournament dealing with whomever is the number one seed between the Lakers, Jazz, Suns? Should they get out of the play-in tournament where it looks like they're going to have to play to the Spurs or Golden State? Or what about the Lakers? Well, I mean, the, the Lakers suddenly are now, you know, they're right there on that line, the six, seven line. Yeah, they are. It, it, you know, and suddenly LeBron James uh, is like, wait a minute, who thought this up? This isn't very smart. And, and count me among those people who, you know, it's like, yes, it's more interest on seven through 10 during the regular season. Yes. But for teams who played a whole season to get to the end of the year and then suddenly have to uh, play one game to, to secure your playoff future just seems uh, bizarre, gimmicked. But, you know, it, it is what it is. And uh, my issue, the, the, where the Grizzlies have struggled this season, they've had, they've shown that they can get big leads. I mean, they had a big lead on the Dallas Mavericks in, in Memphis a couple weeks ago and yep. 
couldn't make free throws down the end. When, when teams counter with their, their final run, they've struggled to answer it, whether, you know, they, they turn it over, they don't make knockdown shots. They can play fast and fun and, and, and just, you know, get up and down the court and, and really are fun to watch. But at the end of games, they just seem to hit a wall where they struggle too often. And I mean, there's been at least four to five games over the last month that if they had just finished what they had started, they, they, could be the team that's in the sixth spot right now so uh mm-hmm. they they've shown some great potential this year and I, I i'm not the only one you know people in memphis are watching wondering when, when are they going to quit giving justice winslow quite so many minutes it doesn't seem to be working concentrate down to your and it's a deep roster so i can understand taylor jenkins issues trying to hone in but you're at a point now with 10 games left that you need to hone in on your core the guys that you know you put them out with four minutes yeah left. The, the Morant of the world, yes. the Grayson Allen of the world, the Brandon Clarks. Exactly. They're going to go out there and make the plays to finish off the game. And, uh, you know, that that's that's going to be you know, they, they play the Knicks on. Uh, and, and I want to see how they do in that game, because uh, it's just they gave that next game away in New York, though. Exactly. That's one of those games that they could have, should have had. And, you know, that's, that's my issue is, and they've got the second easiest schedule through the, the, through the end of this regular season to give them a chance to jump up. They've got to take advantage of that. You know, this is a young roster for sure, but I compare it to raising a kid. You want a kid to start learn how to go from crawling to walking, walking to running. The Grizzlies are walking, trying to run, and they keep stumbling. And part of being in a playoff chase, trying to they need to get into the playoffs to you know to to, to feel that to, to feel the pressure to feel the accomplishment and to also see what is coming and what they're capable of because this is such a young roster that you know it, it, it's it's a lot of talent on this roster too the 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 churning and the rebuild of this this franchise happened very very quickly the predators could do well to pay attention uh because getting the fourth and second overall picks certainly helped you know speed that up but you know, they, they now need to, you can swirl around if you're not careful, you need, they need to learn how to win and get in the playoffs. Cause that's what sports is about. It's not just going out, playing well, winning some games. You got to go play and get into the postseason. And, and that's why I'm very curious to see I, at this point. I don't know. I think it's 50, 50, even with that second easiest schedule, <laughs> I need them to show me that they can go take it. Where do you think the Grizzlies must I mean, we talked about it earlier, but say they make the playoffs and they get bounced out in the one, you know, the best two out of three tournament or whatever, however they're going to structure this tournament. What do you think the Grizzlies must look at in the offseason to get their balance right so they can have a more consistent roster? Yeah, I know there's some young talent, but I'm wondering, do you think maybe that they're looking at this like, okay, there are some guys in some spots that shouldn't be. Well, I think the biggest thing is they just need to heal up. I mean, think about it. They just, you know, they're still working Jaron Jackson Jr. in, mm-hmm. you know, this Justice Winslow experiment. You know, it, it, they've only been able to really work on that over the last month and in spots again because he's coming back from an injury. Uh, it, I'd like to see them be all healthy from the start of a season and then see how they kind of, you know, shake things through. I, I haven't seen enough out of Justice Winslow to, to think of highly of him as the front office in Memphis does. 
And they're going to have a chance to pick up, I think his option for this next year is going to be like $13.4 million. Mm-hmm. So we'll see just how much they really like him. But, uh, you know, this is a team that they just need more court time and they need help. Uh, they've got so many good pieces there that they put together that I can't really, you know, heal up and, and work on free throws. I mean, you know, John Morant, they came into the season wanting him to work on his three-pointers, and his drives and floaters to the basket. His inside game when he goes to the basket is already one of the best in the league. And he was struggling to shoot the three. In the la- in the month of May, I mean, sorry, April. I'm sh- the calendar's flipping on me. Too. Yeah, we're in May. <laughs> uh, but in Last the month, month of April, he, he, his three-point shooting took a big jump. For the month, he was forty point nine percent, and over the last and over the last two three weeks, he was closer to almost forty four percent. So if that's the trend that he's going to able to drive to the basket or pull up and shoot the three, that makes them even more dangerous. But where they've struggled in these games, like at New York, uh, Dallas, etc that they didn't finish things off, make the free throws. So get to the free throw line and shoot some buckets. Yeah, make the easy ones. Because yeah. how many times do we see it in basketball, especially on the men's or the women's side, where it comes down the final minute or the final 45 to 30 seconds, and it comes down to free throw shooting. And there are some teams that can make them and some teams who can't. And it shows drastically and I just don't get it how can you not make the shots that you you know the easy shots there's no one in your face there's no one trying to hit you as you go down the lane yeah, you may have fans heckling you but that's still you should, should be able to block that out and have an easy and make the foul shot well and in this year where you know attendance has been limited because of the pandemic it shouldn't be this tough so that's the thing no, that I shouldn't it shouldn't. So, uh, but colleges struggle with it as well. It's just not that easy. So, uh, but that's the thing. If you can make those shots, you can make yourself an awful lot of money. Where do you think the Titans are with their future QB? I know Tannehill's there, but do you think maybe they believe in Woodside as the future? Or do you think they're going to have to go out at some point? Not saying right now, but at some point to try to go find the next QB of the future for this franchise so we don't go back into the hole that we were in, you know, trying to go through quarterbacks when McNair got traded and so on and so forth. Uh, At some point, yes. I think they really, really believe in Logan Woodside as their backup. Um, They like what this young man can do. That said, Ryan Tannehill still has uh, three years left on his current contract. Uh, I think he's going to be 34 this year. Uh, maybe 33. And so you look at Aaron Rodgers, you look at Tom Brady, Drew Brees, what's to say that, you know, you can't get him uh, for a couple more years after this current contract expires. You know, he, you know, he's coming off a career year, you know, career high, 33 touchdown passes, seven touchdown runs, both career highs, you know, he and Derrick Henry are a perfect match together and AJ Brown you know he made it clear he had surgery on both knees after the season and he had he had a pro bowl season with a thousand yards last year hurting you know and and being nursed through the season and missing a couple of games if that guy can play a whole season uh and and, you know Josh Reynolds I I want to see Des Fitzpatrick uh I I, I'm gonna you know the coaches are seem to be very sold on Nick Westbrook Aquina I need to see more of that you know he's done 
He's done great things on special teams, but you know, if you're if you're developing talent and they've got Rob Moore at wide receivers coach, you know, then that's a guy that that's where you have to get better when you're spending your money on your quarterback, your 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 running back, you're gonna have to pay AJ Brown at some point in the future, your tackle, things like that. You've got to you've got to get value elsewhere. And part of that is drafting guys and signing guys and then developing develop developing them into players who can be crucial players on your roster. So, you know, we'll see, you know, this is going to be a good test for the, for the Titans coaching staff, get this guy better, get Des Fitzpatrick up to speed quickly so he can compete. Uh, we know Racy McMath is going to play off the bat because he's going to help on special teams. If you saw any of his highlights from, from LSU, I expect him to be a gunner on the punt team. From I the think start. Brady, I think Brady Breeze is going to be on special teams as well. I think the last two picks were designed with getting their special teams better. Absolutely. Brady Breeze played like estimated 700 snaps. He was on every uh, special team snap at Oregon uh, in his career there. So, you know, and, 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 you know, this is a team let's remember last year, special teams needs some help. You know, they've got to be, they've got to be better in punt and kickoff coverage. They've got to be better, you know, kicking game. Speaking of they, you know, Steven Goskowski remains a free agent. They, they have Tucker McCann from Missouri who they really like. And then they, they, you know, the reports are that they're bringing in an undrafted free agent from Ohio state a kicker who had like a 55 yarder in a game for the Buckeyes. So, you know, there's, there's areas where you've got to go cheaper and you've got to go younger. And, you know, these two spots, absolutely to help on special teams, an area that, you know, Rick Goslin does a annual kind of ranking of special teams and, and the Titans who've traditionally been like in the top 10, you know, because they've always invested in kickers. They've always invested in punters, you know, they've had some of the best at their positions and, you know, that's been a priority, but it's slipped this last year. And, you know, guess what? Talent makes a big difference. And they got mm-hmm. younger and faster at those positions. So you mentioned her, you mentioned Rob Moore's wide receivers coach with Arthur Smith going and with the linebackers coach, I guess, moving in as the de facto D coordinator. Do you think this team will take a step back, or do you think this team, even though this coaching staff is reconstructed with the players that they have, can take an even bigger step forward? I think they're going to have a chance to take a step forward. Todd Downing was in this offense last year. You know, he was around Arthur Smith. As tight ends coach, you're involved with the run and the pass uh, plans. So, you know, he's familiar with this. He has experience as an offensive coordinator. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't see them changing things a ton. You know, I, I am curious to see with Darrington Evans available more, how much they maybe try to improve the, you know, get the screen game more into this offense. That's something. That's something Mike Brabel has wanted since he got here. Uh, and I, you know, they, they just didn't have, you know, I'm sorry, Deion Lewis, everybody, everybody knew what he was going to do whenever he got on the field. Darrington Evans gives them that change up. You don't know if he's going to run or catch the ball. And, and Derrick Henry keeps working to get better on that himself. So I, I do think we'll see some different tweaks possibly from this offense, but you know, you've got something that's working. You just tweak around the edges and try to get better. The defense should take a big step forward. Now, Hopefully big, big step it, can, it can't get any worse than what it was last year. Exactly. And that's the thing. It doesn't have to become a top 10 defense, although they weren't that too far. You know, Dean Pease's last year, they were close to that, right? Can you at least give me a top 15? 
if they get to top 15 with that offense, then, you know, I, the, the Super Bowl team uh, in, in the 1999 team that went to the Super Bowl, that's about where their, their defense was, was in the, that mid-pack range. You need a team that can make plays. We saw that last year. 15 different Titans had at least one takeaway. They they led the NFL with a plus 11 uh, turnover margin. And, you know, you keep that up with the changes on defense and tweak some on offense. I think this is a team, they fixed their biggest weakness, which was their defense. Yes. Now, now that, yes, that was, that design was totally, you know, defensive centric with the secondary, the safeties, the corners, linebacker, one D lineman. I mean, that was almost a defensive centric draft with the exception of the two wide receivers and a, I guess, prototypical prototype project of Raidens, I guess. I don't see Raidens as much of a project. I mean, this is a guy who, as soon as he played his one game last season for North Dakota State, went to California and started working with Joe Staley. So he's kind of been at uh, graduate school for uh, for tackles in the NFL, right? Sure. So I, I think think that he, I think he's going to have a chance to come in and start sooner rather than later. And, and just remember, Nate Davis a couple years ago, third round pick, he was starting in October. So as long as you can have him healthy and practicing during training camp and Nate Davis missed some time in camp or he might've been starting at the start of the season. Uh, as soon as they got him healthy, he was on the field. So I'm expecting to see Dylan Radins sooner rather than later. Do you think Davis and Radins could be the next duo the Titans could have as the next duo, like the Matthews and uh, Hopkins and Ruse and Stewart combos we've had in the past? They certainly have the opportunity. I mean, and right now, Taylor Lewan has, you know, he's taken his step in that, you know, Hopkins, Ruse, uh, lineage. And st- exactly. Olsen, so, Pillar. Yes, they've had some really good people on this offensive line. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to see. And this line doesn't get a lot of respect. Think about this. Last year, Taylor Lewan gets hurt, uh, tears the ACL in, in mid. Sam Brelo. He comes in and does a nice job for him. Exactly. They went through, they were on their third replacement tackle. And this was a team, you know, it's a, it's one of those weird, you know, there's always a stat, right? The Titans were the first NFL team to have a 2000 yard rusher. Obviously it was just the eighth time that had happened. A passer throw for at least uh, 3,500 net passing yards and allow 25 or less sacks. The Titans allowed 25 sacks, a unit that really struggled. They gave up a lot of sacks in 2019. One mm-hmm. of the reasons why, you know, Mariota ended up getting chased out of that thing. He was under pressure a bunch. And then Tannehill came in and helped cover up some of those issues. And then they finally started gelling late in 2019. And this last year, they only really had to change, you know, Dennis Kelly knew these guys. So a very cohesive offensive line last year. And, you know, the change this year is going to be bringing in Dylan Radins. You know, they're bringing back Sombrello, Ken, Ken, Kendall Lamb is going to have to get used to these guys. But, you know, that's a, that's a unit that is also together. Another piece of the component. This, all, this team is set. It's, it was fix your mistakes. The defensive area was their biggest issue last year. And, and there was an awful lot of, you know, it, sometimes they didn't come out and say it, but, you know, the re- Mike Vrabel doesn't promote Shane Bowen, the defensive coordinator, and go ahead and give him that title this year if it was the scheme that was the issue. They right. they kept the coach. They got rid of a bunch of the players. So, you know, that's where they thought the problem was. So if that's a better team, this team was the fourth overall seed last year with that defense being as bad as it was. 
they, if they can take a big step forward, then this team is going to have a chance to be competing there at the top of the AFC, which is why when I see the odds showing the Colts as the favorite in the AFC South. I don't, I don't like the Colts QB. I mean, I, I mean, Carson Wentz is a good athletic guy, but as a quarterback, do I really trust him to make the big throw when he needs it? Jury's still out for me on him. There's a lot of people counting that uh, that Frank Wright, who is his quarterback's coach in Philadelphia, can come in and fix him and get him back to the quarterback who was playing so well when the Eagles went to the Super Bowl. That's a big ask, though. It is, and they didn't fill their needed left tackle in this draft. So for all the people looking at the Titans saying they didn't get a tight end, they did. those are the receivers they got. They didn't get them until the fourth round and later. Well, the, the Colts now have to figure out who their left tackle is going to be. So, uh, you know, they've got, the, you know, as good as that team is, and they're good. I mean, they, they were right there with the Titans. I expect them to be competing with them again this year. But uh, it's going to be a two-team race in the AFC South. But the Titans have more pieces in place, and it's going to be easier for them to fix their issues, I think, than maybe for the Colts in their quarterback situation. Question for you. Speaking of the other two teams in the AFC South, who do you think did better? Jacksonville, Larry Myers' first draft, or Houston basically on the we-must-rebuild tour with Davis Mills and others? Jacksonville easily because one they've got Trevor Lawrence and you know they they had the first pick in in the rounds uh, after you know where they finished last year and they had more picks plus they know exactly what their quarterback is going to be this this fall it's going to be Trevor Lawrence yep uh Houston we got a problem Yes, they have to figure out what's happening with Deshaun Watson is he playing this year uh is there going to you know how's the all these lawsuits going to handle uh you know he he didn't want to play there he had made it clear he wanted to be gone teams wanted to trade for him and then the whole you know all the uh the massage therapists start talking and the lawsuits start getting filed so you know everybody's kind of on hold for that but uh you know let's not forget that that's a sticky situation so but look at but look at all the talent that bill o'brien before he finally got canned as the fraud that he was look at all the stuff that he mismanaged yeah, I saw a tweet over the weekend from the Arizona Cardinals showing a picture of DeAndre Hopkins. This was our fourth round pick this year. <laughs> you know, a nice little dig that they got that guy as cheap as they, they did. got. They got him for ball pin hammers, a bucket of balls and nail gun. It was so cheap. So it's like, yeah, and, and that's the thing. Rebuilding Houston there's a reason why they're being picked to be the worst team in the NFL this year, because the question is a quarterback and drafting the Stanford quarterback. That's nice. But if that's, you know, if that's who you end up leaning on, they didn't have. And Ryan Finley. I mean, they picked him up in the off season. I'm like a guy that really has barely gotten enough playing time to even see what he has. There's more question marks than answers in Houston. And, 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 and there, it's going to continue that to be that way until there is some sort of, uh, you know, finality with the Deshaun Watson situation. Either the lawsuits are all settled, dismissed, uh, they settle out of court and they, they just kind of go away or, or, you know, and the NFL is still taking a look at this. So, you know, it, it, does he get traded? Does he just never show up? You know, we, there's, that story is still being written, but it's not going to be a pretty one this year. A lot of folks are thinking, you know, now this is from what I've heard, that they need to they need to get the GM thing fixed too, because Jack Easterby, like, they're thinking that he doesn't know have a football acumen. And I'm like, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I don't know. 
I mean, I don't know what Jack Easterby is. The only thing I know is he was on the New England Patriots staff. After that, that nothing. Crickets on him. I well, don't know, you know. The, the, Sports he, Illust- the Sports Illustrated stories on Jack Easterby raised so many questions. And, mm-hmm. and then they hire Nick Casario from the Patriots. Yep. You know, it, that's part. It, it, there's just so many issues going on down there that, you know, it, it, Houston right now seems to be more of a soap opera than football team. And that's never good in the offseason. Yes, the NFL likes to have attention in the offseason. That's why the but not that kind. Not that kind. So, uh, you know, it, it, you know, Houston fans are not happy. They've been carrying signs. They want Jack Easterby gone. And, you know, the, the owner seems to just kind of lean in and, and be sticking with Easterby. So, you know, they're going to, the only way they can fix this is to dampen down the talk and start winning on the field. That's the only way to make some of this go away. Take me back a little bit. I mean, I know I probably kept you longer than expected, but I forgot to mention this. When you said during the 70s and the 80s, when Title IX came in play, do you think that was a turning point? And do you think that has helped more? Or do you think there are some things that need to be addressed with Title IX? It seems like it's, I don't know what the right word is. Not trying to sound like discriminatory or anything, but I'm just wondering, like, in your opinion, where do you think... Title IX has helped, and where do you think they could it where it could improve, or should improve? Well, Title IX is huge because I, you know, as it, as somebody who tried to play softball in '81 at her high school, sure. we couldn't do it because they just didn't have they didn't have anyone who could coach the team or the resources. So, and and when I started playing, when I moved to Tennessee, I was playing six on six basketball, and it, I didn't understand that. It didn't six look on like, six. Yes. <laughs> Wow. I was in sixth grade and I still I did not understand what the concept was. It's like, wait, you're telling me I got to stop at that line and I can't go in. What? It, it made no sense. Uh, thank <laughs> God for Pat Summit every day for helping get rid of that in the state. Amen. But, you know, it, it, it opened massive doors and opportunities. But you look at the NCAA Women's Tournament in March and it's easy to see there's still so many more steps to go. And for, yeah, like the Twitter post with, uh, oh, who was it? The Sedonia of- Price from Oregon and she brought huge attention to that you know the the yoga mat I mean I I don't even stay at hotels that have that little (laughs) bit of a weight room so you know for you know and you know there's there the NCAA has a law firm studying what happened the decisions that were made but you know and yes it's the first time the NCAA had ever run the first and second rounds you know those had always been held at campus sites but you know there was a there was the ball was dropped and they're looking at what happened to try to keep that from happening again but you know Coaches are very unhappy. I mean, you know, Nell Fortner, Don Staley, Muffet McGraw, who's retired now from Notre Dame, you know, mm-hmm. some of the coaches that, you know, they are trying to shine a big light on this to make sure that this gets addressed and try to fix this for the future. And, and, and people who want to say, well, ratings, well, take a look at some of the ratings from volleyball. Ratings you know, has nothing to do with it. Well, but it means eyeballs, and that means that people are watching, and, and marketers want to buy commercials to reach people who are watching. And the ratings for Kentucky's uh, national volleyball championship win—they uh, were higher than the major league baseball game of the week, and and things like that. So, you know, good competition 
if it's women, it doesn't matter. If it's good competition, people will watch. And so there's, you know, I'll, I'll turn to other experts. There's many people over the last few weeks have said there is a huge growth opportunity. You know, women make up half of this country. They're playing exactly. sports. They want to watch, you know, they want to watch good sports. They want to compete. They want to watch their daughters. They want to watch their sisters and things like that. So, you know, and, and guess what? Guys want to watch too. When the sports are good and played at the top level, people will watch. It's just a matter of working through some things. So I think I, I, it feels like Title IX has positioned, you know, needed open door, you know, lots of opportunities, but there's there's some big steps ahead for this, for, you know, to continue growing uh, sports opportunities for women. It just feels like we're on the verge of, you know, a mother may I take a giant step forward anytime now. Do you think Nashville will ever get a WNBA team back? Not a WNBA team. I, I do think that they, those seem to be tied in with NBA teams to help, you know, tap into those resources, you know, and that's where the WNBA has been mostly is in areas where, you know, the, the, the Las Vegas Aces are kind of an exception there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, you know, trust me, I've been hearing questions for a few years. When's Memphis going to get a WNBA team? And Memphis has produced an awful lot of, you know, top talent over the years of, in the women's basketball. So sure. uh, that that's the market that I keep watching and, and wondering when that'll happen. I'm, I'm hoping Houston comes back for crying out loud. Yes. I mean, I, I remember when I, I, that was the WBA I loved. I enjoyed the heck out of it. The, the now, Sparks with Cheryl Swoops, it was wonderful. I, I can't, you know, I can't, I mean, I can find WNBA games, but I can't find any radio broadcast for them, which sucks. It, 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 that's the thing. It's like trying to get, and, 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 you know, let's face it, even with, you know, uh, satellite TV, you know, broadcasts on, on internet, things like that. There's so much more competition for things and for eyeballs and ears, but the challenge is, you know, it, it's just the, getting the resources to everything that's needed. It isn't easy. If you had baseball over the weekend, Florida, tough series there. Yes. And starting to show, even though Vandy is still number two in the nation, starting to show some little, some struggles, you know, Kumar Rocker is still the lockdown, you know, number, number one, one guy. Jack Leiter, as good as he started the season, shown a little cracks here and there. So, you know, let's not forget, this is his first season in college baseball since the pandemic wiped out last year. So, you know, curious to see as they move into May, uh, how he, his game may be improved. The pitches are there. You know, and it, but Tim Corbin's got some things to work on to get this team ready for the uh, postseason, you know, because to, to compete for the national championship, everyone's expecting them to have a chance at. Well, the good thing is, at least, you know, the good thing is, even though they lost the series to Florida, they at least have enough pieces that if they're flowing right, they can do something really special and get another title. And they're still defending 2019. So technically, if they get back to where they want to get to, they'll have another chance to go back to back. Absolutely. And, and if they had not had, if the pandemic hadn't wiped out last year, I thought they had a chance to win last year. You know, they could be going for a three-peat at this point. So, you know, yeah, they've got a lot of great pieces. I love watching the uh, Enrique Bradfield uh, kid when he's on the bases. I mean, think about it. He has more stolen bases already this season than many teams in the SEC. I think he would rank like second or third uh, like for that. stolen bases. Yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, and, and it's Cooper Davis, Isaiah Thomas. Yes. I mean, they got speed. And then you got Gonzalez back, so that helps. So you it, get that uh, senior leadership back. 
It absolutely with does. Mostly a young group. And that's the thing. And this is where, you know, Kumar Rocker helps set the standard. And once you get into the postseason, man, you know, he goes out and throws the way he does. And if you get lighter pitching the way he does, you know, you just need the bats to be working. It, it, it's not It's not like Vanderbilt needs a massive correction at this point. It's tweaks here and there to have things, you know, clicking the way that Corbin wants them to have. And as we always talk about when it comes to tournament play, it all comes down to the draw. Absolutely. And I know that Vanderbilt has put in bids to host uh, regional and super regionals. Tennessee has as well. Um, and, you know, and based on, based on their rankings, you would think and past success hosting that they would, at least Vanderbilt should have one. Tennessee has hosted in the past. So well, we know Arkansas is going to be in that national seed discussion. So we're Vanderbilt. We know it, that. Exactly. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to be, a, you know, get out of the SEC and then shoot that, that the regional and super regional might almost be a breath of fresh air. I really haven't looked at everybody yet. because I don't know who they're going to put in Vanderbilt's pod, Arkansas's pod, but I'm guessing they're going to try to keep everything as close as possible. So there's not a lot of travel for a lot of these teams that are like all the way out in the, on the West coast, like in the middle of nowhere. Or, well, as or as close, keeping them as close travel wise as possible if other teams have to travel. That's going to be an interesting component because, you know, we saw what they did during the NCAA tournaments. They created bubbles in Indiana and Texas that you can't do that for baseball. And things seem to be opening up. I mean, in the Nashville area there, you know, May 14th is going to, is a big date for, you know, loosening up things. And these are games that are going to be outside, but the NCAA has set a 50% maximum uh, capacity for no matter where it's at. So that helps kind of, you know, you would think that helps even the playing field, but Hawkins stadium, you know, Hawkins field is kind of a small stadium stadium to begin with so uh, it's a bowl. it feels like a bowl it does so I can't wait to see what happens and where, where we get things to go together here so uh, I'm just you know I can't wait to see I am planning on Vanderbilt hosting not just a regional but a super regional well and- not only not only that if they play their cards right and, they, and their pitching is where it should be not only do I not see not only do I see the hosting a regional and super I see them not only getting back to Omaha, but winning the whole thing. If, and this is a big if, their pitching and hitting and defense are all in lockdown mode. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's the thing. You, you've got to have things clicking. That, that's an absolute. So, But here's the thing. You know, it, because Rocker and Leiter are so good, and, you know, and yes, Leiter's shown a couple little, you know, cracks here lately. But, you know, you're, again, you're competing in the SEC. You know, it, those two pitchers are good enough that they can go in and just lock down the first two games of the series for you. That's what makes, in my mind, Vanderbilt so, so dangerous. Do you think maybe that, because the concern I have had for this season is that number three slot. They've rotated Christian Little. They had Thomas Schultz in as a starter, but I think they now pushed him back to the midweek starter, which I think has actually helped him a bit and it's taken the pressure off. But if it comes down to it, if they need the third starter, which they will, for a chance to win their re- win their side of the region, do you think that might be something that could be a stumbling block? Maybe I'm not saying it will be, but I'm just saying if it came down to it and they had to play a third game, 
Oh, absolutely. It's why it's why that when Vanderbilt has had their issues, uh, you know, they, they've struggled on these uh, on these uh, Sunday games, the third games of series. So uh, that's absolutely going to be the area that could come back to bite them in the end. And thoughts on Shay Ralph as a new coach of Vandy women's basketball? What do you, what do you think? Because I talked to the women's playboys of UConn women's basketball and asked him about Shay Ralph as the new women's basketball coach. What do you think she's going to bring to this team? Like, do you think they're going to try to get back to their toughness where they once were? Or what do you think she's going to bring to this team? I, I, well, two things we know off the bat, her competitiveness, she, she's going to be able to talk to recruits and say, I know how to win. And then, oh yeah, you know, just the, she, the last 13, you know, final four, she was a part of as an assistant at UConn. She won games national championship as a player. Uh, You know, the only reason she didn't have an WNBA career is because of a knee. So she can point to that. You know, she's brought in Tom Garrick, her husband as an assistant. She brought back Ashley early who played at Vanderbilt. And so, you know, smart. Very smart because again, like with football, you've got to get the right player to come there. Okay, you know, you got to make sure that they're ready for the uh, the toughness in the in the classroom, but then they've got to be able to to compete. And you know, Stephanie White I thought was a good hire, but you know, you know, she kept wanting to go fast, but she had the same issues Melanie Balkum did. Had mm-hmm. too many players leaving after only being there a year or two. You cannot win in the SEC doing that. You've got to get players to come and be here three to four years, commit, buy into your system. You know, I've been here long enough that I, my first season covering Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt women went to their lone final four. Okay. Uh, was that, I, was that the Jim Foster, Rhonda Blades, um, Heidi Gillum bunch? Gillingham. Yes. Gillingham, uh, yes. Yes. That was that group. So it was a great team. And, you know, he, he, he was a constant with Jim Foster to go to the elite eight. You know, they had threats to go to the final four, but they were an elite eight team. Then they, and then Melanie comes in and then it was like, okay, the, the, the ceiling seemed to be the sweet 16. And then it got to the point where they couldn't even make the tournament. So with Shea Ralph, I'm expecting a return to getting back to being a tournament team. It may take a couple years to, to get the talent on the roster because, you know, one of the things that happened in the week before Stephanie White was fired was three players transferred elsewhere. Um, you know, so that, that did not help the situation. Now, two of those were, I think were graduates. So maybe they didn't get accepted into one of the grad schools, but you know, it's just rare to have three starters leave that at that point of the year. So that kind of forced the hand, but you know, at this point, Shay Ralph, she knows how to win and she, she and Candace Lee, Candace Lee who played, uh, you know, around, you know, 98 to 2002. Yeah. I think she was, she was on the same team, I think. Chantel Anderson and I think Carla Thomas, I think. Uh, it sounds right. And that's the thing. She knows what this program can be. And, you know, so she, she was, you know, they were going to try to give Stephanie White some time and not, you know, they, they opted out in January because their roster numbers, they, they were, they could hardly field a team, you know, because of injuries. They had the one girl with COVID who had myocarditis. I mean, there were a lot of things going on, but, you know, the three transfers seem to be the trigger. And especially when they're putting money into the women's program, there's going to be yep. you know, that practice court we talked about. About, et cetera. New lock, you know, upgrading the locker rooms. You can't do that when, uh, you know, and, and continue with what was going on. The standard has to be higher on the court as well. And Shay Ralph, the only question, and it seems to be how long does it take to get to have for her to be able to turn this program around? 
And I'm thinking another thing that's going to be really, really important is to lock down the mid-state and keeping kids home and not allowing them to leave to go elsewhere. Absolutely. And think about it. Uh, One of the players that uh, Tennessee Lady Vols lost out on, uh, Crystal Dangerfield, went to UConn from the Middle Mm -hmm. Tennessee region. So, you know, there's there's still great women's basketball talent in this state. It's a matter of getting it. The same thing, the same challenge for Kelly Harper is the same for Shea Ralph. Don't let them leave the state. And I mean, well, I'm guessing due to the fact that Kelly Harper and Shea Ralph have been on successful programs has to help somewhat. Oh, absolutely. That's the thing. They know what it takes. And, you know, we, we talked about the assistant uh, coaches that uh, Shay Ralph hired. Well, Kelly Harper changed out her, her staff as well. She brought in Sam Williams, who was a great recruiter at Louisville, uh, had been head coach at Eastern Kentucky. She brings her in and then she brings in uh, uh, uh going to mess up her name, but she, she brings in somebody from Florida state. So she's, she's changed out her coaching staff as well to get better. That's the thing you've got off, to- off of Sue Samaro's staff. Uh, yes. Uh, I think it's joy McCovey. I was just looking at that a minute ago. Um, uh, yeah, here we go. I got her. Yeah. There was Sam Williams. Shoot. I didn't save the other story, but yeah, <laughs> joy McCovey, I think is her name, uh, to, to come in and help that staff. And that to me is that, you know, too much turnover can be a bad thing, but the people that Kelly is adding seem to be helping address the areas of need. You've got to have talent to compete for the SEC and national titles. And think about it, an SEC that now features Kim Mulkey at LSU. Thank you for bringing that up. I was going to ask you about that, your thoughts on Mulkey leaving her alma mater, going to LSU. They haven't had a – LSU hadn't had a real – hadn't had a – I'm not going to say real coach, but they haven't had a coach since what, Pokey Chapman? Well, they had it's Nikki been. Fargus, but, and, and, you know, and Nikki had, you know, under Nikki the last few years, they had not made the tournament. So right. you know, they made it early under her tenure and then they started sliding. So, you know, Kim Mulkey, heck, she might end up getting most of the Baylor team to follow her as transfers this year because of the one year, one time transfer situation. So uh, suddenly the SEC is got top heavy. Oh, boy, did it. And then let's not forget Don Staley, whose team was in the Final Four. But just couldn't make shots. Just couldn't make the shot at the end to, to, to get, you know, so. And that's a team that, a young team, a very talented team, that's now going to have a year under its belt. So LSU, SC, you know, it's just. LSU, you, South Carolina, Tennessee, Vanderbilt, Judge Jury Stroloke, UConn's basketball only going to get better because they've got almost every, they've got everybody back. And plus they added. Yudoka Yuhas from Ohio State. So, and plus whoever else they're bringing in here, because a lot of players there. I mean, women's college basketball is going to get extremely rough and tumble. Women's basketball is going to get rough and tumble next year. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I love to see it. I, I, you know, from the days of. It's great. It is. This is what, you know, this is what made women's basketball so very good is because you had the very best competing against the very best. Iron sharp sharpens iron. And, you know, rising so, ties raises all ships. And the SEC women's uh, basketball tournament will be in Nashville next uh, March. And uh, it, this is going to be some good, fun ball. Um, and here's the thing you have 14 teams. And depending on what the lower half of the league does, that 11-14 and 12-13 aren't going to be as easy as they once were. 
Uh, no, 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 no. And uh, so, yeah, you, you, you got to bring it. And that's, that's what I like about what uh, Candace Lee did at Vanderbilt. You know, she asked, that's the thing. She asked Shay Ralph if she'd be interested, you know, sometimes, you know, you've got to go take the shot. People just, you know, assumed she was never leaving. She was going to replace Gino. And instead she went and asked, and she's got a coach who's willing to come here and take on that challenge. You know, Count me among the people that I understand the allure of signing to go play at Alabama football or UConn basketball for women. Mm -hmm. it, you know, you, you know the tradition and there's a challenge to keep up that tradition and keep winning titles. But I also like it when people say, you know what, I'm going to go build that back because I know what that used to be. And that's what Shay Ralph said. Shoot, that's what, uh, you know, Kelly Harper said when she went to Knoxville a couple years ago. So and she's, bring, she's bringing it back. And that's what Kim Mulkey did going to LSU, even though she was a lady texter. Now, I do wonder, since we're going all around the world in 80 days, where do you think this Vol football team is? I mean, it, do you want to talk about having to build from the bottom again with all the stuff that's still being looked into? And now that they have a new head coach, a new athletic director, and a crowded quarterback room, because not everybody's going to get the ball. Uh, no. And, you know, coming out of spring ball, it looks like maybe Hendon Hooker had the edge, but, you know, that's the one thing. It's going to be a competition through uh, August, and now they're adding this quarterback transfer from Michigan. He isn't, you know, has not been confirmed yet by Tennessee, so wait for the paperwork and the ink to dry there. But, you know, yeah, competition is good. That's what, you know, and, and then he goes and gets a commitment last week from a four-star kid out of Indiana who grew up watching Peyton Manning and wanted to come to Tennessee because he remembers Peyton at Tennessee. So, you know, there's not a lot of players out there that do, that are like that so you know I will say this Tennessee should be interesting to watch this year because it's the, the offense is going to be fast they're going to be you know lots of plays lots of touchdowns I have major questions about the defense and what they're Big going to time. be able to do but you know guess what it's going to be tough for them to be much worse than last year uh if they just quit throwing pick sixes that's <laughs> an improvement for this for this football team Pick sixes. Yeah, I think I, I think I see. I think I saw another one. Well, there were reports that uh, Jarek Garantano it was intercepted on his first pass at the spring game where he transferred. Oh, so, uh, yeah, that does seem to be bashing. But you know, it, it it's <laughs> it is very interesting. So, well, the good uh, news is at least the bashing's on a podcast, not on actual terrestrial radio. Yes. It's so, <laughs> yeah. So I think you probably have some stories to follow up on. Any big news locally that we that at least I should keep an ear on I mean oh and on Poyle by the way I forgot to mention this David Poyle is like the Rooney family he doesn't change people out very often unless it is so dire that he has no choice Exactly. And that's the, that's the thing. That's why he, you know, he kept waiting, waiting, waiting to see, if, you know, did he have to, he was, he gave the Predators every chance to prove to him that he didn't need to make a trade, at least not during the season, that he didn't need to make any other moves during the season. They played their way through it. And, you know, he needs to, and how much change happens this off season is going to be determined by what happens this week. And if they make the postseason, what they do from there. How many guys do you think, even if they don't make the playoffs or they do and they get bounced out first round, are most likely gone due to free agency? And plus now with Seattle Kraken being online now as of Saturday or Sunday, where they can sign players and things like that, 
How many of those players do you think the Predators are going to keep unprotected that Seattle could go after? Well, I would expect uh, uh, Matt Duchesne to be uh, unprotected for sure. Um, you know, it, I think it's a small circle of guys that you actually protect. Uh, you know, I, I tra- if I'm David Poyle and, and they get, they're out in the first round, I trade uh, T.S. Ekholm as huge as he's been because you've got a year on, on him and you can get something for him before and this you've got draft. younger guys that have shown that, yes, we're ready to play. Exactly. So uh, I just want to see what's going on and, you know, see what they do. But, yeah, there's going to be changes this offseason. The, the, the thing that limits a massive change is them making a ridiculously deep run in the playoffs. Other than that, Even there's – they make- well, let's just stop there for a second. They Even still have to they, expose somebody in the Kraken draft. That's what I'm saying. Even if they make a ridiculous one, say they get, oh, I don't know, get out of the, you know, play in or whatever they're going to call this first round instead of the gimmick tournament that they did a year ago. But maybe yeah. they get to the conference final. Let's say they get they get out of the Central Division pot or they somehow make the conference final. Even if they do that, they'll still have to make some tough decisions on who they can't they they can and can protect. I'm thinking Forsberg's going to be a protected guy. Oh, absolutely! And even though David Poyle said the last time he talked to us at the trade deadline that he would like to you know do an extension with Matias Ekholm, it, it, it's the same problem the Titans have. You can't spend your money everywhere. And the NHL is looking at a flat cap for the next year or two because of the pandemic. Now, the TV contracts that they've just signed, which are going to kind of essentially double per year the amount of TV revenue they're getting, which was absolutely huge. And they got and they finally did something right and got ESPN back on board. Thank you. Exactly. But that's the thing. You know, can you can he afford to keep all these guys? To me, Matt Duchesne is the easiest player to expose in the Kraken draft. Yeah, easy. Ryan Johansson, when he's on the ice, even if he's not scoring, it's a better team when he's on the ice. So but I can you keep him though? Well, will anyone take him though? Might be that's the, the question. Yeah. Yes. That those two contracts are so in hindsight, not good that it's just tough to see them sticking around. How are contracts determined? They're good and bad. Cause it's hard for me to figure out. With, because I know all these sports are different from MLB, NFL, NHL, NBA, all the major four food groups in sports. I really can't figure out like how they determine which contract is good and which contract that they signed that they may have. How can I put it? Overreached for. Well, here's the thing. At, with, with Johansson, there was, you know, he was coming off a season where he had been really, really good and, you know, young enough that you want to lock that up for, for a long time. And it was the biggest contract the Predators had ever given out at that point. And, sure. then, and then Matt Duchesne had been, become like the white whale that, you know, that David Poyle had been trying to get for so long. I mean, you know, when he was at Colorado and it's like, when are, the, when are they trading for Matt Duchesne? And, and then they finally signed him as a free agent and, you know, sometimes, you know, the grass is sometimes not always greener on the other side of the fence. Correct. And since, since he's been in Nashville, the production has not, you know, forget the contract. I mean, you know, the production, the production has just not been there, you know, for somebody getting half the salary he's getting. So, you know, that that's what when it's when there's something so out of whack, so egregious, you know, when a guy's getting that much money and unbalanced. It's very unbalanced. And, you know, he, I know he's got three points in the last six games since coming back from an IR, but 
that's three points. Now he's made some really great passes. He had one for Eric Gudbrunson in the game against Dallas that, you know, God, it was set up for Gudbrunson to just knock it in, tap it net, in, tap it in and you've got a goal and he whiffed on it. So <laughs> he's raising his play. Uh, the challenge is, you know, could he play well enough to make some people happy with that contract? And, you know, the odds are probably not good. But when it's obvious you have an unbalanced problem, can you get to the point of no return where you get what you want, but the unbalance is so obvious that you're going to double and maybe sometimes even triple down on, hey, we signed this guy, you know, give him some time. But again, in this fast-paced world of sports, how much time can one player get? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I, I will, you know, John Hines made clear that he was telling uh, the players coming off of IR that they had to meet the standard that was being held up by, you know, by all these young guys who got in. You know, they got Eric Hollins of the world. Exactly. They got their youth movement, but thanks to injuries uh, to a certain extent. And, you know, the, the point was made, if you want playing time, you're going to have to earn it and you got to play to this level. So, uh, you know, how does this continue? We'll, we'll see, but you know, it, there, there's going to be some changes this, this off season for the predators, because, you know, somehow, some way, you know, something's going to happen. If only because the Kraken are going to be drafting somebody, you know, the predators got real lucky when they took James Neal off their hands. And yes, I know the, 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 the old Knights did really well, went to the finals, did all that great stuff. But look at where James Neal is now. You know, I think he's on his third team since since he, he left the tie, uh, the Predators. So it's going to be very interesting to see which player gets drafted off of, or taken off of the Nashville roster. If, if it's if it's Duchesne or even if it's Johansson who gets exposed, if you can get one of those contracts off, I think you do a part. You save some cap space and plus Massive. you can still keep your youth movement and depending on what you do when this upcoming draft, you're still going to have even more youth coming in. Absolutely. So, you know, and, and that's the thing, this, this team has played well. How do they, you know, how do you tweak things to get back to competing at the top of your division again? Yes, this is the, the Jerry rigged central division this year because of the pandemic, but when things go back to uh, some semblance of normalcy and we're not, you know, shut off from the Canadian teams by the border, uh, you know, they, how do they get back to compete for that number one, number two seed, you know, because right now, yeah, it, I, I can't see anybody, you know, predators do get in, no matter who they're playing, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough. And I don't see anybody, you know, the predators are going to have, they're in a prove it mode. I, I can't see anybody picking the predators to win a, an opening series because based yeah. on what we've seen this year. Do you think the Preds at some point are going to have to move from the West to the East at some point? I, I, I thought so, but you know, with Seattle coming in, it seems like they're going to keep them there, but uh, it, it, Nashville is so much closer to Carolina. Yes, Detroit, they are. Chicago. Uh, shoot. They're even closer to uh, Tampa Bay and Florida than they are. Seattle. And Columbus. Yes. It, it just, it just feels like the, you know, the NHL needs to maybe take a look, use Seattle as that reason to tweak things a little bit. And look and, at where and, Seattle is. They're closer to San Jose, Anaheim and LA. Exactly. So hopefully they'll fix some things, but we'll see. And look at, and the sounds open up tomorrow against a team they should have been playing years ago in the Toledo Mud Hens. I think my, I think when Major League Baseball stepped in and did this reshuffle, I think for the sounds part point of view, I think they got it right. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's the thing, you know, it just, it, 
I mean, shoot, but I, I'll say this. I can't tell you how many people think the Memphis Grizzlies are in the Eastern Conference. Well, they should they were, be. They should be. Um, <laughs> in fact, the first playoff series they had, the first playoff game, I filed the story and uh, somebody changed Western Conference to Eastern Conference in my story because they thought they were in the Eastern Conference. And, and they, like, uh, if my math is right, weren't they playing the Spurs? Uh, well, this was their first playoff series. Oh, was, I that, think, oh, was that the, oh, who was that? Clippers, I, maybe? I don't know. I, it's it was back in the early 2000s it was with Hubie Brown and Pal Gasol and yeah and Jason Williams I was there I just can't remember the opponents I do know that they lost their first 12 playoff games uh just as a franchise so that was pretty ugly but yeah that's another team that seems like it should be in the east kind of like an MLS you know right now thanks to the pandemic you know Nashville's in a weird spot Yes, but right now they're in the East, and it's like, okay, how long is this? Is, how long is this going to last? Yeah, you're playing Montreal. You're playing Miami. I mean, it's like, okay, when are they going to get this hodgepodge fixed? Because it's like, I I don't understand how Nashville fits with Montreal. I don't. I mean, I understand the Miami factor, but Montreal. Well, and, you know, I want to see what MLS, NHL does after we, you know, once the pandemic gets to a point where we can, you know, teams can move freely across the border and compete again and see what they do. And if they do think about kind of tweaking things up, it'll be the perfect time to do that if they choose to. I thought I saw something along the line. I mean, there's like Cincinnati FC. I think there's St. Louis FC. I think Memphis. I think 901 Memphis is coming in at some point. I think they're in like the USFL in the uh, USL or something like that. So there's a lot of teams online right now, but how many of those teams are actually going to get to MLS status? Exactly. So, and there's, there's three, like three or four teams with the United, like how, like, are they all in the same state? Soccer is utterly confusing. Yeah, soccer is very confusing. So, but you know, the fact that they've got them playing in the East this, this year and last year was a smart move and hopefully it continues. And it'd be nice to see that, you know, for the, for the predators. And cause I'll say this, when the predators and Grizzlies go out West, those, those nine o'clock, nine 30 start times. I, Oh my goodness. There's not enough <laughs> caffeine in the world. Not only that, do you know what time these games end? Uh, yes. It's well, one o'clock. Well after my bedtime. And then if there's overtime, oh, So here's a question. As a newspaper writer, how do you, you know, now getting back to your life as a writer and pressers and things like that, late night start times. How are you filing these stories, you know, before you actually hit the bed or do you have to get up in the morning and just file the story and just get all the information you can just to even get a story out of it? The beautiful thing about working for the Associated Press is it doesn't matter if I have a game that kicks off at 11 a.m. or 11 p.m. Uh, shoot, the, uh, the the Predators playoff game that ended in uh, triple overtime. It doesn't matter. I have a story that has to be filed within it is ASAP of the clock hitting zeros. You know, I might fill in the final score, a couple stats, but I need to be punching a button and sending that story to New York immediately. And the idea being so that can be moved within 20 minutes of a game being over. And then my next version, uh, an hour after the game ends. So my timeline never ends, no matter where I'm writing, whatever the kickoff time is, no matter where I am in the world, that never changes. 
is that is that tough or basically since you've done it for so long it's easier that you're like okay this story this first story has got first version's got to go version number two has to be gone at a certain period of time like is there a method on how to tidy everything up maybe to get just one story out of it instead of two or is it always spread out into two Oh, absolutely. Well, there's the AP way, you know, the hero lead, as we like to say. Uh, and, and you know, trust me, I've had sports writers tell me over the years that they don't know how we do it because, you know, it, it, it seems deceptively simple. You know, Derrick Henry ran for 200 yards and three touchdowns as, you know, but that's the thing. You build the story as it starts and you're ready for as it's as it's needed. You know, you know, your team. I have my notes. The storyline um, will change the storyline will change. And I sometimes, I usually, especially in playoffs, I have two screens because one team's going to win, one team's going to lose. And so I have it written as if, you know, each team wins and then I kind of build the blocks through there. And then for that second version, it's more taking the first story, maybe rewriting and putting a new lead on the top. And then, you know, kind of taking, I almost feel like I'm a builder at times. I'll take a quote and it's like, Oh, I know exactly where it goes. It's going to go into the fifth graph and just putting the pieces together. And that's one of the things I love about, you know, writing is figuring out where those pieces go. And I forgot to ask you about this, since you were mentioning Earl Campbell and Derrick Henry, this is definitely the last one. I'm, I know I've kept you way over than expected. Even though I know you got some time off, I know you don't want to spend it all day on Zoom. So <laughs> I do like to talk, though. <laughs> so do I. So don't feel bad. But is Derrick Henry a more powerful version of Earl Campbell? Or who in the running back pantheon would you compare Derrick Henry to? Ooh, that is a great question because, you know, watching Earl, Earl Campbell's strength was in his thighs. I uh, mean, yeah. he looked like he had redwoods, you know. Same thing blocks. with Herschel Walker because he'd run right over you. Exactly. And, you know, Derrick Henry, Derrick Henry has got is 6'3". And, you know, he, you know, yes, he's he's muscled and, and running hills. I mean, I've seen some tweets where people are writers have tweeted out like he's doing workout. I'm like, is this man human or cyborg? Well, and his trainer every year seems to create new workouts to design to, you know, to maximize him. And, you know, the, the one this year where he's got his feet on a ball and he's, you know, using a band to do push-ups attached to a you know weight bar with a chain around his neck. It's like, are you kidding me? Uh, he's not human. <laughs> but but the thing is. You know, he does the when I talked to Billy Damian Tomlinson in December for a story because Derrick mm-hmm. Henry just became the first back to repeat as NFL rushing champ since Ladanian Tomlinson in 0607. I had and, forgotten LT won back to back of those. I had forgotten it's been so long. Exactly. I did too. I had to triple check it. And you know, and LT was great. And he said the thing that jumps out at him and 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 fellow running backs about Derrick Henry is how few hits he takes. He's, you know, he is powerful as he is. He is not, and yes, he pounds it up into the middle for sure. But when he gets out in space, what do we remember? It's not guys hitting him and knocking him out. It's the of, it's that stiff arm and then he just get turns on the accelerator. Exactly. He's not being pounded on. And for people who think, you know, people didn't want to give him another contract last year. They're like, oh, he's running back. You don't do that. And the Titans didn't go to Zeke Elliott. You know, uh, they didn't go. They didn't overspend for him. Right. That, that that that's the thing that grinded my gears when the Cowboys overpaid Zeke Elliott. And this is what I like to refer to as Zeke Elliott got fat, happy, lazy syndrome. <laughs> 
where he got his money and he's not having to put in the effort. Well, and, and with Derrick Henry, that, I mean, you if you were to draw up, you know, it almost feels like sometimes maybe Nick Saban built Derrick Henry in a secret laboratory at Alabama. I mean, <laughs> he, he, you know, everything in his contract year, he, he never wanted to talk money. I'm all about the football. Uh, he never thought about holding out. You know, last offseason, there was never an issue. He said, yeah. I know that I'm going to get my contract. He wasn't looking to set the new market for running backs. It wasn't was, a me, it wasn't a me, me, me type thing because he knew what he was getting. Yes, he wanted to get paid for sure, but he wanted to, you know, he wanted to be paid and be respected, sure, but he wanted to just work, and he likes where he's at, and this is a guy who, you know, he didn't take a ton of, you know, his Heisman Trophy year at Alabama was the year that he had carried the load. His first two years with the Titans, you know, he was behind DeMarco Murray, you know, he didn't start really becoming a starter until the, almost the the second, third, late in the second season of, uh, of his career. So, you know, yes, he's got a lot of carries these last two years, but this seems to be a guy who is just built differently. I mean, you know, he, he, the fact that he's not taking tons of hits, yes, he's got a lot of carries, but as Jeff Fisher once said a lot about Eddie George, that football doesn't weigh that much. Nope. So it, as long as he's not taking the pounding, it just feels like he's got a lot of tread left on his tires. They have him under contract for three more years. I, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does. But trying to, he, you know, so some people have told me that he, he's a little bit like a Jim Brown to them. That's, you know what, that is a good comparison that I hadn't even thought of. I, I'm trying to remember who told me that last year, but, you know, they, they thought maybe like a Jim Brown. and Maybe even a Barry Sanders with his speech. Exactly. A kind of a combo here. And, and by the time his career is over, you know, people might be trying to figure out who looks like Derrick Henry. And let me put it this way. I know everybody gushes over Christian McCaffrey. I know everybody gushes over, you know, just pick your guy. Aaron Jones of the world, j- just pick your guy. But I think Derrick Henry tops all of them, to be honest with you. Well, availability is a big part of this. And think about this. The game that Derrick Henry missed in the last two seasons, the Titans held him out because they wanted him. He was a little nicked up, and they wanted him at full speed and healthier for the playoff run. And sure enough, all he did was help essentially run them to the AFC Championship game. So, you know, he didn't want to sit out that game. They sat him down to get him a little healthier, and it sure paid off. Do you think the defense last year in the in the divisional round was a problem? Because it seems like the offense had to carry the defense a year ago, and it just felt like the offense just had nothing left because they had to carry. They just had to carry the defensive side of the ball up the hill just to even make the postseason. And they had by the time they played the Ravens, they had nothing left. Well, the defense played probably its best game against the Ravens last year, but the the, the thing that hurt the the offense in that game. Corey Davis was hurt. AJ Brown, you know, yep. he had a big AJ Brown had a big catch in that game, but he was a, he was slow to get up. He was yep. hurting, and you know, Adam Humphreys was missing in action. You know, he was on IR, so yep. you know they they did you know they were they were thin on the receiving core, which is why so many of us were looking for them to add more at receiver. I still don't think John Robinson's done in that area. I um, I wonder is Ferks. I mean, I know they have Ferks as the what lone tight end right now. I'm guessing there, there's five tight ends. On the roster, they they did sign Jared Pinkney, uh, you know, former oh. Vanderbilt player who I, you know, I think that he's got some up serious upside. I yeah, like him at Vanderbilt. I like I, that I, kid. 
I just thought he should have come out maybe a little sooner than he did uh, from Vanderbilt. But, you know, so I think he's in a good spot. They could bring back Michael Pruitt. So I think they'll be able to replace it tight end faster. But, uh, you know, and maybe it it is speculation. You know, Atlanta has to do something with Julio Jones. Yeah, I know the Titans still in the mix for that. But for me, it's like you're at, I mean, Atlanta's going to ask for a haul, a first, a second, a third, and maybe a fourth. Who gives that up? I mean, here's the thing. That's my. Look, that's the thing. Who? You know, you, you might. It might not be that much for Julio Jones because Julio Jones. He missed seven games last year. He's going to be 33 soon. So you know, there might not be teams willing to give up that much. So the team that comes, you know, maybe it's a second rounder next year. You know, or you know, and and you know, if you give up a second round pick, I don't think it'll be a first. Uh, I, I just don't think that any team will give up a first for Julio Jones at this point in his career. Who do you think? You think Rodgers is gone? And I know Deshaun Watson, you know, doesn't want to be in Houston. Well, he might not even have a choice because he may get traded anyway. But do you think that the story that came out on draft night with Rodgers is a clear shot at the GM of not having an open line of communication with him and overreaching to get a quarterback that they could have waited for? for day three or possibly day two instead of trying to get him first day and not even getting him help on the offensive line and receivers. And now they're trying to work on it, but it could be too late and the ship has sailed. Well, the one thing we know is that, you know, when when they took Jordan Love last year and traded up to get him. Yeah, that was, for me, that was an overreach. Well, it it was for everybody. And, you know, why take uh, Jordan Love when you have Aaron Rodgers? Yeah, why? It, it just it made no sense at the time, and it just feels like the fruits of that pick are coming to roost now. Uh, you know, all the reports that you know he you know he's not happy that you know he's wanting more of a deal. I saw an interesting stat today: no quarterback, Brett Favre, Bart Starr, and now Aaron Rodgers, uh, no quarterback at this point has played more than sixteen seasons for the Green Bay Packers. Aaron Rodgers just finished his sixteenth season, so uh, it, it, it you know it, trust me, this is going to be the off story to watch. We thought it was going to be Deshaun Watson. Uh-huh. Who, you know, if his legal situation gets cleared up, you know, it's kind of back to square one where he wanted to be traded, and then you know, Aaron Rodgers though is right at the top because he's the reigning NFL MVP. I mean, we we can go so many different directions here. Like, okay, say, let's just, I mean, because I was talking to somebody last night, we were talking about, you know, which GM worth their salt, okay, would basically turn their back on a quarterback that has kept you in the Super Bowl discussion every year that he's been there. And he's had crap to work with for the last decade since 2010. That was the last Super Bowl win. Even when they got to the Super Bowl, their defense was suspect. But again, you don't turn your back on the MVP. Uh, well, but here's the thing, you know, sometimes it gets down to salary cap management and, you know, as a franchise, if you choose that, you know, players aren't going to dictate to us what we do, you stand firm and you back your, your GM in this situation. So, you know, Hey, Brett Favre, you know, he was retiring. He wasn't. And then finally that just came to an end. You know, this story is not over, but it sure seems like we're closer. You know, is it, you know, he just simply says I'll retire and I'll go, you know, maybe if they offer him the jeopardy gig, he's taking it. (laughs) Exactly. How do you not do that? $10 million for a few weeks of work a year uh, (laughs) and and a gig that you could hold for as long as you want to. I mean, Uh, yeah. 
how long did Alex Trebek have it? So uh, uh, yeah, try over 30 years. That's going to be the uh, soap opera, the NFL soap opera of the off season to watch for sure. And where do you think Russell Wilson fits into this equation? Right. Think, I think it's the same thing because I mean, all he's asking for is a little bit more help with the running game, but here's my thought on that. Hey, salary cap pal, you asked for 30 something million dollars a year. You asked to be paid like one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Well, guess what? There's a cost to that. Yes, there is. And that's the thing. You have to pick and choose. And at a certain point, you know, hey, uh, the Titans traded away Steve McNair in 2006 to Baltimore. Why? Because he was counting such a big number against their cap. And even though the cap is projected to start rising again after they get through the pandemic pain, uh, you know, right now, Aaron Rodgers is taking up a huge chunk of Green Bay's money. They may just decide that it's, you know, at a certain point, it's time. I mean, they were there in the NFC Championship game, hosting it on their field. And Aaron Rodgers couldn't help them win the game. so And the defense, though, didn't do much either. Exactly. So Let's certain, just call a spade a spade there. So sometimes teams just decide to move on. And, you know, so I, stay tuned is all I can say. Exactly. So I, I don't know, you know, where Seattle is going to be. I don't even know if they have a quarterback of the future yet or not. I don't know if they even have a replacement for Russell Wilson if this – happens who do they go to then well right now it seems like it, it feels like if russell wilson were going to go anywhere it would have happened uh before or during the draft at this mm-hmm. point it sure seems like he's going to be there so uh at least for this year now let you know next year let's let's stay tuned you know that's that's the beauty of the nfl things change quickly at the drop of a hat yes this has been a definite blast and hopefully if i get a chance to get you back on the pod again hopefully we'll be actually talking about games and how teams are actually doing instead of trying to figure out, oh, what is this player going to do in pandemic-wise because we're still stuck in it? Yeah, even though vaccines are out, it's still the big unknown on how these are going to work. Yep. Because we still don't know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, just when we think that things are looking great, now we seem to be hitting ahead where people are, you know, not getting vaccinated. And it's like, you know, all I know, I'm vaccinated and my family so, is. So am I. Thank you. And just praying that people will do their homework and, and, and you know. Have some common sense. Yes. The, the, the biggest concern I've heard is that this happened so fast. Doctors and scientists have been working on these vaccines for years. To me, I compare it to like they had a car in the in the garage, and when this new thing came down the road, they went in, they made some tweaks, swapped out a carburetor, put on some new wheels, and swapped out an engine, bang, boom. Then they they had the they had these vaccines. That's why they've been able to get them out so quickly. And thank God that they did. But you know, they only work if we all get them. Get I'm, the I'm listening to the Business Wars series on these exact on these exact vaccines and the behind the stories on. You know, a lot of these companies that were trying to get these vaccines out in a quick amount of time, and a lot of them had stumbling blocks and all the election stuff and so on and so forth. And I'm like, whoa, yeah, I can see why these companies were having all kinds of fits and starts and trying to figure out how they were going to get this out without, you know, running into the election crosshairs and so on and so forth and trying to get these vaccines out. Exactly. I mean, you know, the people who are concerned about being a tracker, it's like, come on, do you have a smartphone? They are already, I've got two in an iPad, so I know they can track me. So it's just, come on, people, let's common sense. Let's Speaking of of tracking social media, do you think that's helped or hurt writing? 
I, I think it's hurt in a way because, you know, I still use Twitter as a way, as a tip service in a way, right? Yep. And sh- to share pieces that aren't going to make it into my story. You know, I, I've I, seen, I've seen some of your posts because I do follow you on Twitter. So, yeah. Thank you. And, yeah. and that's, yeah, that's the thing. Over the weekend, I wasn't filing off of every single pick, you know, draft pick on Saturday. So I was sharing tidbits from the interviews and things like that. It's a great place for extra information, but, uh, you know, Secretary overload, in my opinion, because sometimes, I mean, I like getting information, but I don't really want so much information that I can't parse out which one I actually want to look at and which one I don't, because there's so much there. Well, and it, and here's the thing. It, people want things shorter, faster. I think that's the biggest thing that Twitter maybe think. You know, people want something they can read in a quick minute. And it's like, you know, no, sometimes the best story is one that, you know, feels like it took five minutes to read, but it you actually sit, You sit down and peruse it. Yeah. So it, it, I think the challenge is, yes, it makes you write more, better. You know, you have to be better to, uh, you know, I feel like I'm trying to be a better writer uh, to make sure I'm getting eyeballs on my stories. But I do think that in the end, Twitter is helping me reach people that might not have seen my story before or read it and didn't know that it was by me. And of course, the good news is they don't really have to know that. But due to the fact that your name is on Twitter and plus the good news is there's, not, there's no copyright in there because it was your story and your pen and your typewriter and your computer. Exactly. So I, I, I love social media because it allows me to reach out to people, people, you know, before, you know, for without before social media, not many people knew who I was, even though I've been, you know, in, in Tennessee covering sports for the Associated Press since June of 92. And this allows me to, to connect with a lot more people. So I love it. Thank you much. Lou. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. My thanks to Hall of Fame sports writer from the Associated Press, Tariq Walker, for being my guest on today's episode of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. If you have suggestions of who you'd like to have on this podcast, please email me at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com, Twitter at king underscore tsb, and on Instagram at lking.cardinalsfan85. If you want to find out more about this podcast, look up the Blind Broadcaster Podcast Facebook page. And for this network, look up Luther King Broadcast Network Facebook page. Until next time, this is Luther King for the Blind Broadcaster Podcast, a proud flagship entity of Luther King Broadcast Network. You've been listening to the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Blind from birth, Luther King never let that stop him from attaining his goal of becoming a blind broadcaster. To find out more about the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network, search the Blind Broadcaster Podcast or Luther King Broadcast Network on social media or visit Luther King Broadcast Network network.com.